0: Hi, you're listening to Power to the People, a weekly show about social justice movements in Central Kentucky, produced in partnership with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, the Kentucky Student Environmental Coalition, Central Kentucky Showing Up for Racial Justice, and the Kentucky Workers League. This week, you're with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, or KFTC, and we're glad you're here. Let's get started. We are Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and this is our vision.
1: We are working for a day when Kentuckians and all people enjoy a better quality of life. When the lives of people and communities matter before profits.
2: When our
3: communities
4: have good jobs that support our families without doing damage to the water, air, and land. When companies and the wealthy pay their share of taxes and can't buy elections.
5: When all people have health care, shelter, food, education, and other basic needs.
0: When children are listened to and valued. When discrimination is
3: wiped out of our laws, habits, and hearts.
5: And when the voices of ordinary people are heard and respected in our democracy.
6: of Kentucky have been heard, and they want a new direction
3: for the Commonwealth of
0: Kentucky. We all remember what happened across the country on election night, but in Kentucky, it was something so much more. For the first time in Kentucky's history, Republicans now have control over the State House, the Senate, and the governor's mansion. Not only did the House flip, but dramatically so. Going into this election, Democrats controlled the House with a 53-47 majority. Now, Republicans hold a supermajority with 64 seats to Democrats 36. Yes, that's 17 seats that flipped. Today on our program, we're looking at the new Frankfurt. Who's doing what and who's showing up to resist? We'll take a look at some of the legislation that was signed into law during the first week of the General Assembly this January and the movements that aim to stop them. But first, I want to talk a little bit about what we got ourselves into this past November.
2: Tonight, history has been made in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. That's Jeff
0: Hoover, the new Speaker of the House.
2: And tonight, tonight for the first time in
3: almost 100 years, we can say... Republicans are the new majority in the Kentucky House of Representatives.
0: Election night for Jeff Hoover was huge, not just because his party won a huge victory, but because he was poised for something he's dreamed of his entire life, leading the state legislator as the House Speaker. Hoover often talks about the legacy built by his late parents, Welby and May Hoover, who both once represented District 83 when Jeff was young. But the other narrative of this transition of power in the House has been Jeff Hoover's stated commitment to equal representation and respect in the chambers, regardless of party. That and his stated desire to pass just a few bills. He's talked a lot in the past few months about how he wants to focus just on creating jobs. We have to start off slow, he says. I should note here that, as I'll talk more about later, it, of course, took only four days for the House to pass two different abortion bills. But anyways, back to November, Republicans won big, and lots of progressives across the state were getting back to the drawing board, including us. KFTC leaders from across the state came together in December to talk about what's next for us. And of course we learned that it's tough to figure out a plan when you don't feel like you have any allies. But we talked about goals for the next two weeks, for the first quarter of 2017, and for the next two years. This is how we strategize for the long haul. And then we showed up. day of the General Assembly this year was January 3rd. It's almost like the first day of school, but like for political geeks across the state. Maybe you run into folks you don't really care for. Maybe you find your old friends. And despite our collective anxiety about the election, we still had some victories to celebrate.
2: Hey,
4: congrats. Great
1: to see you. Very excited for today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you look great. Right, try to
4: find a seat, if you can It's packed happened to run into Attica Scott on yeah. the way. Yeah. To- One thing
0: KFTC members were really excited about was the swearing in of freshman representatives. Huh? Attica Scott, cool. a newly elected representative from Louisville, was endorsed by KFTC during the election. This year, Attica became the first woman of color elected to the Kentucky House in almost 20 years. keep it a little because we get VIP primetime Okay, so this part is kind of boring, but basically the swearing in involves a lot of formalities, clapping, state patriotism, etc. I was there with some other KFTC members, and we watched the whole thing from the overflow room, which happened to be the Kentucky Supreme Court chambers. The
5: order of business is the certification of election. Mr. Clerk... Please read any communications you have received. It's pretty
0: awkward, actually, because something failed with the projector, so whoever was in charge just sort of jerry-rigged a smartphone so that we could all watch. For most of the ceremony, lots of people in the room were just watching the live stream on their own devices.
5: Is it what looks to be a document camera,
0: possibly? Oh believe that someone's Samsung signified by saying
4: aye.
0: And we're watching a video of a live feed from a smartphone.
5: Congratulations, gentlemen from Russell, 83. For those using their phones to turn the volume down before everyone
0: else can see. Now, if I were a cynic, I'd draw a metaphor here about the incompetence of state government with this whole live stream business but I'm not that petty. Anyways, it was exciting to watch Attica along with others, including another KFTC endorsed freshman from Louisville, Mackenzie Cantrell, get sworn in that day. Everyone who came out in support of Attica Scott showed up wearing red in solidarity. Today was a good day. Today we got to celebrate. Sometimes just showing up is a victory, too. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll dive right into the legislative session and find out why lawmakers think mandatory ultrasounds qualify as emergency legislation. Up next on Power to the People. Stay with us.
5: Hi, I'm Adam. I'm from the Madison County chapter of KFTC. Are you looking for ways to get involved and raise your voice for the rights and needs of all Kentuckians? Join Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Visit kftc.org join to become a member by contributing any amount. Help us become 11,000 members strong as we work to build a more just Kentucky for all. It takes just a few minutes to add your voice to our growing movement. Join today at kftc.org. Thanks.
0: back to Power to the People. I'm your host, Meredith Wadlington. You're listening to Lexington poet Bianca Briggs in the background there. Today on our show, what went down in Frankfurt in January. So two of the really high profile bills are what we'll be focusing on in this segment. Those are House Bill 2, which requires a woman to view an ultrasound before getting an abortion, and Senate Bill 5, which bans abortions after 20 weeks in Kentucky. Both of those bills had been pre-filed, both with an emergency clause, which essentially puts them on a fast track. So, on the second day of the legislative session, Planned Parenthood advocates and the ACLU of Kentucky held a press conference. Doctors weighed in on the issue, but also many women who have had abortions shared their experiences. Here's just one of them.
6: Hi my name is Katie Martin. My story is not uncommon. I found out I was pregnant after contraception failed me. I had been a patient at Planned Parenthood um, so going there for my reproductive health care and so when I feared that I was pregnant or that the condom broke I went to them for help. Um, My living situation and support structure were up in the air at the time that I needed to, um, that I found out that I was pregnant, um, and I was not in a position to be a parent. I had limited time to access the healthcare I needed because I was moving at the time, so Planned Parenthood suggested um, the surgical abortion over the pill. They were, the staff at Planned Parenthood was extremely supportive, non-judgmental. They really cared about my feelings and my comfort. I don't know where I would have gone if Planned Parenthood was not around, especially since I had attempted to get support, financial and otherwise, from my partner at the time, but ended up having to do it um, and figure it out on my own. Um, It's almost been about 10 years, and like most women, I have no regret. I am grateful that I was able to make the decision that was best for me. I am a student today and able to plan for the family that is right for me and my (coughs) husband. We are both in in undergraduate studies and I will be graduating May of this year. Uh, After many years of working and fitting classes in and moving to different states, marrying my husband, um, it means so much to to be able to graduate from college. For me, abortion was the moral decision.
0: Katie's story points to a lot of what this conversation is about. And I want to point out a few things. For one, she says that, like most women, she had no regret. And this is true for the overwhelming majority of women. In fact, a study came out in 2015 stating that 95% of women think that terminating their pregnancies was the right choice, even years later. So why is that stereotype still around? I think the short version is this, there's still a huge stigma in the United States about getting an abortion. That much is clear. So shame is one of the tools of the trade when lawmakers want to use that stigma against women. Pam Newman was one of the women who testified at the hearing for House Bill 2. Here she is speaking with Representative Stan Lee at the hearing.
5: I appreciate you coming to Kentucky and, and your passion that you've exhibited to stay here. We uh, many of us love this state and love all the citizens here and, and uh, some uh, arguably might care more for the unborn than others. And I understand that's an issue for some people. But the, the question I had is I understand that in Pennsylvania, when you were about to undergo this procedure, uh and I think I got this right, you were forced to, to watch a coercive video can you share with us what made the video coercive so
2: what I believe made the video coercive is I've already arrived at the clinic and I've said I would like to have an abortion this is the decision that I am making for what is happening in my uterus and the video is displaying parents holding children and offering adoption services. I I had done my research. I'm a very intelligent person. So I don't think that it's necessary for me at that point, after I've already talked to my practitioner, talked to the people at the clinic, come to the clinic and been tested positive for pregnancy, for you to then say, you know what might be a better idea? Look at this option. That's coercive, in my opinion. Um, That's traumatizing, in my opinion. Um, That's unnecessary, in my opinion. Um, If we really want to uh, talk about ways that we can get people out of a situation where they are in an abortion clinic, let's talk about comprehensive sexual education statewide.
0: I caught up with Pam after the hearing and asked her how she was feeling.
2: I feel, I feel fine after the testimony. I wish that um, we could have had a more engaging dialogue about what uh, Representative Jenkins was talking about and the factors that prevent people getting to the point where they need an abortion, right? So quality jobs, you know, being able to afford another human being in their life. And the, the issue that I brought up of comprehensive compassionate, um, intelligent, sex ed, um, age appropriate for every Kentuckian. It's frustrating because the the information and the data is available, but these people are not speaking from anything but emotional drive. Rather than, the the word of the day was informed consent, but I feel like there were a lot of people on the panel today that were not informed not driven by statistics, not driven by actual medicine, not driven by the experiences of people who have um, sat in those stirrups.
4: Snow in our forecast for the rest of the day. About two inches expected this afternoon. Less than another okay, inch um, before 11 o'clock. My way
6: home tonight.
0: from
4: our Frankfurt, in but i the
0: upper see
4: what um the chambers were there, lady from 66 yield to a question so
6: sounds like they're voting on well, house bill 2 so i apologize mr speaker actually this piece of legislation isn't about informed
2: consent it refers to of course the bill passed not to my
0: surprise and the very next day to also to no one's surprise senate bill the 5 national, passed uh, that's the bill that bans uh, abortions after 20 prepared weeks prepared i wasn't able to make it to the hearing for that bill but I was able to speak with someone in Lexington who works in abortion access to find out what these bills really will mean for women.
1: So my name is Andine Quinn, and I do abortion access work here in Kentucky. I'm a state coordinator doing training in Kentucky on how to make sure people have access to abortion.
0: So it's now February, and we have two new abortion laws on the books here in Kentucky both of which passed through a legislature which I should remind you had very publicly promised to concern itself only with jobs creating legislation during its first run in January. So first I wanted to ask about this ultrasound bill. A lot of the discussion surrounding this bill talked about how incredibly invasive this now mandatory transvaginal procedure is.
1: So I think it's important to understand that they already do an ultrasound when you're going into um have an abortion because they need to know what at what gestational point you are. So that's already something that happened. And I think that's important to lift up because I feel like folks who aren't aware of that might think, well, this is great, it's important to have an ultrasound. That's like good health care. Well, that already happened. So what they have mandated now is a transvaginal ultrasound. So Previously, the ultrasound that they performed at the clinic is kind of like what you've seen in movies. Uh, It's just an ultrasound that happens on the outside of a person's body with a machine. Transvaginal ultrasound is like a wand that gets inserted into the person's vagina and then takes images from inside of the vagina of like the uterus. That can be really triggering for folks who have a trauma history and even folks who don't. It is pretty invasive, especially when it's not necessary. That's, that's what people have to look forward to now in Kentucky. Do you have any-
0: so as Ondine points out, this mandatory ultrasound created by House Bill 2 is in fact a second, more invasive ultrasound on top of the one already done by their obstetrician. I asked Ondine, what's the angle here?
1: I mean, I think all of it is meant, all of these restrictions and these barriers are meant to deter people from accessing abortion care. I think if somebody wants to have an abortion, they're gonna try to get an abortion. I, I wish people would understand that to access abortion in Kentucky and in a lot of other places is very difficult. And people don't just wake up one day and say, you know, I think I'm gonna go down to the abortion clinic and, and just get some things taken care of today. Because abortion is something you have to pay for yourself, and it's quite expensive, especially in Kentucky, and because of transportation, and because of waiting periods. I mean, these are things that you have to really mull over and consider when you're making that decision. So by the time you get yourself to the clinic, at the point where you're having an ultrasound and and talking to folks about your procedure, you've already made a lot of choices and a lot of decisions, right? So I don't think that this new procedure is going to deter people from having an abortion who want one. I think it's just gonna further traumatize people who are trying to access abortion care.
0: I think one of the most important points Andine Dean makes here is that, like she says, people don't just wake up one day and change their mind about whether or not to keep their child. This is a long, exhausting process for a woman to go through. And women don't make this decision lightly. But that seems to be the assumption behind the other big abortion bill that passed, Senate Bill 5, which prohibits an abortion after 20 weeks. Here's on Dean again.
1: So 20-week bans are kind of arbitrary. Um, Prior to that, we had a 23 and a half week gestational limit on abortion. So they basically shaved off about a month or so um, that people can access abortion care in Kentucky. The majority of abortions happen between in the first trimester, so up to 12 weeks of pregnancy. So the reasons why somebody might need to access abortion after 12 weeks, it could be that maybe they didn't find out they were pregnant or maybe they were in denial about being pregnant. I think that's less likely. There is definitely the possibility that because of these barriers again to accessing abortion, it takes a person longer to get to their procedure, to get to the clinic, than they would have wanted. (coughs) But a lot of times folks who choose abortion later on in pregnancy, you know, a lot of that can be uh, the result of finding out about a fetal anomaly of some kind. And my understanding, uh, I'm not a medical professional at all, my understanding though is that some of these um, Some of the tests they have to detect those kinds of things um, can't really, they're not useful before 20 weeks of pregnancy. So you might be 20, 21, 22, 23, weeks along, and so on and so forth, before your doctors are able to determine that the fetus is not viable or there's going to be some kind of other health issue. So really what this 20-week ban does is it puts people um, in that situation in a very terrible position because if they find out that you know this is not a viable fetus at 21 weeks they can no longer choose abortion in Kentucky and I just think that's already I can imagine it's already a difficult time for folks who are more excited about continuing a pregnancy to then add this layer of now you have to figure out how to go out of state to have an abortion I mean that's going to be the very real impact on people I think it's important that people understand that abortion is really common and it's really normal. One in three American women will have an abortion in her lifetime, so the fact that we don't ever talk about it, uh, yet so many folks have experienced having an abortion or chosen abortion is ridiculous. Abortion's really safe, um, especially when completed in the first trimester at a clinic. You know, I think what we're doing when we try to legislate people's reproductive health access is that we are, we are creating conditions that can be really dangerous for folks. You know, abortions existed before 1973, before Roe v. Wade. Um, they just weren't always safe. And I would hate for us to go back to that and in some places we already are. And I also think it's really important to lift up that the people who are most impacted by these kinds of bans and these like roadblocks that are put in the way, are poor folks and folks of color. Because rich people, people with wealth, um, will always be able to find access to abortion, right? If that means flying to New York or Chicago or wherever, they, they'll figure that out. They have the money or the support to have access to those resources. It's gonna be people who do not, who are gonna be the most negatively impacted by this legislation. So I think that's also worth considering um, I guess it's, it's kind of a, I hate to paint like a doom and gloom sort of picture. I mean, there's also a lot of really powerful organizing happening around this, not only in Kentucky, but on the national scene. So, you know, I think folks do not want to have access to abortion taken away. And I hope that, you know, we can recover from some of these losses.
0: So that's what those two new abortion laws look like in Kentucky. But I'd also like to add that if you are finding yourself in a position where you need abortion care and have no idea where to turn and feel overwhelmed, Andine says that there are lots of great resources in Kentucky that you can turn to.
1: So first of all, the Kentucky Health Justice Network, which is based in Louisville, is an amazing resource. They offer a hotline of support that people can call to ask questions about abortion any kind of question so that's a wonderful resource they offer free interpretation services for folks who uh, have a limited english proficiency but need to access abortion they can offer people rides um, another great resource is a 24-hour phone hotline called backline and they're not based in kentucky but they're a national phone hotline that can counsel people on all their options, so abortion, parenting, pregnancy, adoption, and they're really great and they're well trained to be non-judgmental and affirming people's choices. And then lastly, um, you know, because we live in a part of the state, or part of the country rather, that's fairly religious and I think, you know, people's religious values are are sacred to them and, and your faith can come into the discussion if you're thinking about abortion. We have a great organization called the Kentucky Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, and um, they're a network of clergy from different faith traditions who have been trained on how to um, do counseling for folks who are considering abortion in a way that's affirming and non-judgmental. So I think that's also a great place for someone to turn who just wants to process a little more uh, what they're thinking.
0: Okay, we're going to take a break here. But stick around when we come back. We hear more about the KFTC approach to lobbying and why we think it's important.
3: From the lecture chapter of the Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Stay up to date with our episodes of Power to the People by subscribing to the show on iTunes. Find the show by searching KFTC in iTunes or on your podcast app. It just takes a few minutes, and then you'll be the first to know when we update a new episode. Thanks so much.
1: Welcome back to Power to the People,
0: where today we're talking about our new Frankfurt and what's been going on this legislative session so far. Before we go any further, I'd like to talk a little bit about what it is we bring to the table as Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. We like showing up in Frankfurt. we like lobbying our legislators, but we do it in a little bit of a different way than most people might think of when they hear the word lobbying. So I sat down with a staff member, Jess Hayes-Lucas who has spent a lot of years in Frankfurt and was able to tell us a little bit about what is the KFTC approach.
3: My name is Jess Hayes-Lucas, and I am on staff with KFTC. I joined as a member in 2004 when I moved back to Kentucky from spending a little bit of time in Maryland. I'm on the organizing team.
0: At KFTC, we're always talking about ways to build power. We're committed to building new power in Kentucky real, effective networks of people across the commonwealth working together to change their communities. And we believe that normal citizens lobbying their legislators is a big piece of this.
3: Through regular people in Kentucky who are impacted by the policies that we're working on, we're able to help legislators learn about what those policies are, how they would impact Kentuckians, why we need them, and why we are organizing to support them. Um, Because a lot of times legislators just don't know, you know, they have a lot of legislation, they just don't know what some of the pieces of legislation say or what they mean. The other way that it builds power though is because when we lobby in Frankfort, we spend a lot of time in the annex basement talking with each other, um, hearing each other's stories. People from Harlan County are able to sit down with people from the Wilderness Trace Chapter and from Jefferson County and Northern Kentucky and Southern Kentucky. People come together and share their own stories about how they're impacted by these policies. And building that collective knowledge and that shared understanding is a big piece of what keeps people motivated to do this work and motivated to organize um, because even when they feel tapped out they realize oh well this is actually impacting people who um, who are not me so I'm gonna keep going for, for everybody else who's impacted by this so I think that that is a huge piece of why our lobbying work has been important. It's not so much the conversations with legislators even though that's a piece of it, but it's also the conversations that people have with each other.
0: So imagine what happens when normal people from all over the state show up to remind our elected officials that we belong here too. That's what happened last week at KFTC's Stand for Kentucky event where hundreds of Kentuckians came together from all over the state to stand in the Capitol and just visibly show up to say, we may feel outnumbered, but we're not going anywhere. We belong here, too. Here's Jess again.
3: So I think when most people think of lobbying, they think of somebody who is wearing a suit, who has a leather briefcase, and who has been paid a lot of money to speak to an issue that they are being paid to speak to, but they may not have a personal investment in. We are exactly not that. So the folks who we bring up um, to those meetings with legislators are people who are directly impacted by the policies that we're talking about that day, or who are volunteering their time because of a, a vision that they have for a different Kentucky, for a better Kentucky. We think it's really important that real people are in the Capitol building. And if you go, you know, if you go into the Capitol building and you take all of the regular people out, so all the people that KFTC and our allies encourage to come to the Capitol from week to week, then all you see are a bunch of suits. And that's not what our house of government should look like. We should see real people who look like us, who talk like us, who are dressed like us all over that Capitol building because it really does belong to the people. So um, that's that's our approach. What we 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 encourage folks to start with their own story and how they are relating to a piece of legislation that they care about, and to share that first with the legislator. And in and in that way, everybody really is an expert. Like we don't relegate people who are directly impacted to a to a lesser position in this work. In fact, those that that's an elevated position. Um, It really does lead our strategy and lead the work that we do around legislation. A lot of people go go deep and get in the weeds about the nitty-gritty of policy, and that comes out in our network and in our tax justice work and in our voting rights work. You know, there are people who learn the finer points of all of the pieces of legislation that we work on or work against. But um, the thing that we really come into those offices with is the personal stories from folks who are impacted and then um, what else they need to share out about that legislation. As Jess says,
0: we encourage lots of normal people to get to know their legislators. Sharon Murphy, a member of the Central Kentucky Chapter, is one of them. Sharon has lobbied in Frankfurt to restore voting rights to former felons and here in Lexington to raise the minimum wage.
4: If you're in Frankfurt, of course, they have, like, each representative and senator, they share a secretary. So most of the time what it is is you'll go in, you'll say, tell secretary, I'm here to see such and such, and then you'll wait in the waiting room. So while we're all waiting in the waiting room, you know, we're getting everybody's talking points, like, okay, you're going to talk about this issue, you're going to talk about this issue, you know, so it's kind of like a little rally like a little blueprint. Even though beforehand, KFCC, they always do a good job of making sure you're fully prepared, but for that meeting with that particular extra representative or a senator, then they try to make sure that you have the talking points for that particular issue. Because as you know, KFC we work on a variety of issues. So while you're waiting, we just capitalize that time to have a meeting. And then you'll go in and, you know, they'll give you your spill like, I appreciate you all coming. And they always say, I appreciate hearing from constituents. And then you just put the plan into action, which you just talked about in the lobby five minutes beforehand.
0: Of course, as I've mentioned before in this episode, the General Assembly is a lot different this year. Remember the 17 seats that flipped? So maybe our approach might look a little different, too. Again, Jess.
3: What is different about this session is that we there is a supermajority in the House and in the Senate that is Republican, and the governor's office is Republican. So that's one of the things that's different, is that we don't have a system in place where... Um, we don't have a system of checks and balances in the state legislature or the executive office anymore another thing another thing that's different is that there is just a huge influx of newer members a couple of those are folks that we know and really love and appreciate like uh, representative scott and representative Cantrell and there are a whole slew of folks who um who we don't know you know i think it's about a third of the legislature is new right now so that's different too and so i think that what that means for us is that we're looking at our work in frankfurt right now is how do we stand with our allies and stand in resistance? But stand with vision in that resistance even while we're, we're building power back home in our chapter areas and in our neighborhoods and our communities but when we show up to frankfurt um it's not with the intention frankly of passing legislation this year it's it's um to stand in resistance and to stand with vision for a better kentucky so it may look like a long shot
0: even more so than before to pass legislation in frankfurt this session but
4: as Sharon reminds
0: us, we can show up at home too.
4: Um, if you do get a meeting with them, most of their um, meetings are on Tuesdays and Thursdays because of course our city council positions, are part-time, so they have full-time jobs as well. And you just go and you just talk to your issues and some of them are more responsive than others depending on what the issue is. We vote these people into office, so technically we are their bosses, so it's like we can't demand X, Y, Z from them if they don't know washington she said you may not be thinking about politics but politics is always thinking about you and i always keep that in the back of my mind
0: you've been hearing from jess hayes lucas an organizer here at kftc and sharon murphy a member here in central kentucky stick with us we're going to take a short break but when we come back we'll be rounding out the show looking at the right to work legislation that passed this session stay tuned
5: voice is under attack what do we do the workers voice is under attack what do we do
0: Welcome back to Power to the People radio you're here with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth or KFTC and this hour we're talking about what went down in Frankfort, Kentucky just a few weeks ago during the first portion of this year's General Assembly. So one of the major bills that got a lot of attention in Frankfurt this January was what's called the right to work bill. You've probably heard of it. And I should also probably stop right here and say that as KFTC, the language in our platform is a little vague about right to work, so I'll just read it verbatim. The platform says, we support the right of workers to organize and the right of collective bargaining. Now, as we'll learn in this segment, uh, right-to-work legislation is really complicated, but it seems to me that right-to-work is inherently tied to the right of collective bargaining in that right-to-work laws ultimately weaken the power of collective bargaining. So to be clear, the perspective of our organization, KFTC, and therefore the perspective of this podcast, is pro-worker. However, my goal here is to demystify and untangle a lot of what's going on as honestly as I can. It feels like this conversation around labor unions is shrouded with mystery and a lot of hearsay. So, let's start with the basics. What is right to work? Right-to-work laws govern the relationship between employers, employees, and unions, prohibiting union security agreements. So this means that employees in unionized workplaces cannot be compelled to join a union, of course, but moreover, it means that employees cannot be compelled to pay for any part of the cost of their union representation. Before we go any further, I'd like to address a few myths of the right to work laws. So here we go. Myth number one, union membership is required for employment in some industries. So the first thing to know about labor laws in general and right to work specifically is that it's not legal for employers to require union membership as a basis for employment. This is known as a closed shop and was outlawed by the Labor Relations Act of 1947, also known as the Taft-Hartley Act. That's right, it's been illegal for a very long time for employers to require their employees to be union members. So in other words, in literally every jurisdiction in America, even if the majority of workers choose to be represented by a union, any worker can object and choose not to join without risking their job. But of course those workers still benefit from higher wages bargained for by the union representation that they opt out of. So what does right to work have to do with union membership and fees? Well, in non-right to work states, non-union workers still pay what's called a fair share fee that covers the costs of the union representing them at work. After all, everyone benefits from union representation, members and non-members. This fee basically covers representation, so collective bargaining, contract administration, and grievance adjustment, but does not pay for political organizing. Conversely, in right-to-work states, a worker can choose to pay nothing at all, even though the union is obligated to represent all workers equally, regardless of their membership status. So, to be clear, nobody anywhere in the United States is legally forced to join a union. And no one anywhere in the country is forced to pay a full union membership fee. Okay, myth number two, unions are only effective in blue collar industries. I think that most of us probably have a particular image in mind when we think of unions. Tough guys covered in dirt or wearing helmets and coveralls, holding tools. The sort of old fashioned union guy. For lots of us, union workers may be synonymous with auto workers, steel workers, or here in Kentucky, coal miners. But so-called white-collar industries have grown in union membership over the past few decades. And according to the US Department of Labor, professional workers now make up the majority of union members in the United States. You're probably familiar with teachers' unions and nurses' unions, but increasingly, professions like doctors, graduate students, digital journalists, student athletes, insurance agents, paralegals, and pilots are all unionizing. In Kentucky, right to work affects all these industries. There was, however, a union-related bill that passed through the Kentucky legislature rather swiftly this year that only affects the construction industry. It has to do with what's called prevailing wage, and we'll get to that later. And finally, myth number three. Right-to-work legislation attracts businesses to the state and therefore creates more jobs in Kentucky. So here we are at the central argument in this right-to-work debate, the idea that right-to-work makes Kentucky more competitive. And I really want to include the voices of working people here, but before I do, let's talk about the logic behind this myth. The idea here is that right-to-work lowers wages which makes it cheaper for businesses to operate in general, but especially in manufacturing, and therefore creates more space for jobs. I think it's really important to ground this conversation in the numbers. So according to the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, there's no real research that shows a link between right to work and job growth in the manufacturing sector. So let's look at our neighboring states, for example, many of which have right-to-work laws in place. If we look at the Quarterly Census of Employment and Wages, or the QCEW, produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Kentucky is actually closer to pre-recession manufacturing recovery than any neighboring right-to-work state. In fact, as of June 2016, Kentucky sits at a 97% recovery, way ahead of Indiana, Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia. In other words, ahead of all our right to work neighbors. Of course, there are no clear ties that link job growth and right to work laws like I said earlier. So, to be fair, there could be lots of different reasons for our nearly full recovery in Kentucky. But let's look at a spot that's relevant on the local level. Louisville is a great case study for this sort of comparison because the greater metro area of the city extends into Indiana. No surprise, a right-to-work state. When we compare data from counties on either side of the Ohio River, manufacturing jobs on the Kentucky side of Louisville have grown significantly steadier than the Indiana side since Indiana adopted right-to-work in 2012. If you're like me and you're thinking that certainly there must be some other factors at play here, It's worth noting that multiple studies from the Economic Policy Institute, as well as the Center for Business and Economic Research at UK, have controlled for all other factors and still arrived at the same conclusion, that right-to-work laws fail in boosting job growth in states that have adopted them. And I'm pretty certain that the Center for Business and Economic Research at UK is not some liberal think tank, so those just seem to be the facts as far as I can tell. So here's what we do know about right to work. It's undeniably associated with lower wages. Again, even controlling for other factors, the Economic Policy Institute finds that workers in right to work states make 3.1% less a year. Numbers-wise, that's like the cost of your utility bills every month. Still, many Republican lawmakers maintain that right to work creates jobs, and that is what all this fuss is about. So let's go back to Frankfurt. Day two of the session, I'm walking to a hearing on a completely different bill, and I can hardly get in the door. There are union members everywhere, hundreds of them probably. No
2: voice! No peace! No voice! No peace! This is Derek
0: Thacker, a union worker who showed up to protest Right to Work.
2: ask you about your sign. What does it say? Uh, why don't you take a 30% pay cut?
0: Can you tell me what that means?
2: What they want to do is repeal the prevailing wage, mm-hmm. and all that basically does is make people work for less. Just... With them, why don't they take a pay cut instead of working people? Right. The Republican Party finally got majority in the House and the Senate, and the first thing on their agenda is to take away from workers' rights, like prevailing wage, right to work. It That's all so about quickly, work.
4: Didn't it?
2: That's the Republican Party for you.
0: I should also say here that a part of the Right to Work bill included striking down what's called the prevailing wage, which I mentioned earlier. The prevailing wage is a base wage paid to workers on construction projects for public works that cost more than $250,000. Unlike Right to Work laws, prevailing wage is a little more straightforward. It means that workers on publicly funded projects will be paid less. So there was a mix of folks in the hallways who were against both right-to-work and striking down the prevailing wage. I stopped and spoke with a union woman named Myra. She works with AFSCME, that's the American Federation of okay, State, Adams, County, we and Municipal Employees.
4: spoke out in the hallway uh, about right-to-work. She said that uh, now that they're in office, they get to vote. <laughs> The way they wanted to.
6: And I was like, dude, it's the people,
4: not you. Yeah, it, we were all, say, chanting over there. Um, uh, that's girly. You know, have you ever worked? Have you ever did middle-class work? Have you ever, some guys, have you ever laid cement? Have you ever picked up a hammer? You know, so he, he did speak.
0: She's talking about Governor Bevin here, who showed up at the hearing, ostensibly to quell some tensions, but that did not go over well. He ended up ducking out of the hearing through the back door.
4: So he's, he snuck away. He snuck Way to the other side and just kind of, you know, disregarded our. I got to stand up. Right, okay. Disregarded our right to work. Basically saying, look at Ohio, look at Michigan, look how you know good they, they're, they're doing. Oh, the I'm they from Michigan. And where you live? Now I live in Shelbyville. Shelbyville? Yeah, but I'm from Michigan originally, and I left Michigan for work to come to work for the state of Kentucky, um, and now we're for the union. But it was. Right to work is wrong. I think it's just right right.
0: So one big thing that right to work proponents say is look at all of these right to work states. Look at how well they're doing. Myra showed up today at the Capitol to say, no, actually, I'm from a right to work state, and I came to Kentucky for work. I'd really like for it to stay this way, where unions are strong and workers are supported. It sounded like a lot of union members felt like they weren't being heard, and there's a reason why they were all spilling out into the halls of the Capitol Annex. This morning, a hearing was scheduled for a right-to-work bill, but a pro-right-to-work group had reserved the room before the hearing and boxed them out. There were a lot of people saying that not a single union member was allowed to speak at the hearing. But I did speak with a union member from Louisville who did get to exchange a few words
5: with Governor Bevin. Timothy Morris, I'm with the Greater Louisville Central Labor Council. Uh, What?
0: So you spoke with Matt Bevin after I did. uh, Governor Bevin after the hearing. What? What exactly went down? Did he in in the hearing and then?
5: So the hearing uh, still seems to be going on. They have packed the um, the chamber with uh, our opponents. They've packed them with rich CEOs and business owners. They haven't let a union member one in those doors, they locked these doors so that we could not have a voice in there. And they're gonna be voting on right to work um, in committee along with a repeal of prevailing wage, which will harm every single person here in Kentucky. Uh, the repeal of prevailing wage will take away um, a lot of these workers' jobs. They work on construction jobs, building schools. Those prevailing wage jobs will be gone and they those jobs will go to folks in virginia they'll come here folks in ohio that'll come here all across the country that'll come here and then when they leave they take those wages and take them to other states that's our tax revenue that's our jobs that's our people and that's what's wrong with prevailing wage, and that's what's wrong with right to work. Um, but I talked to Matt Bevan, He was trying to do the old, well, I'll, I'll go in there and talk to him and listen to them and make him feel like I'm, I'm actually listening to them. But he clearly doesn't understand what unions do.
0: Tim's point here is that unions do so much for their communities, that they are a part of the working fabric of a city. And a lot of these union members were feeling frustrated to see that sort of unity weaken, not to mention facing an extreme cut in their wages. So I asked, what now?
5: Well, the next steps for us are that we discuss this with all of our members that are gonna be harmed so badly and prepare for the worst and hope for the best. But that's, that's about all that we're, our hands are pretty much tied. There is no check, there are no checks and balances for this extreme agenda that the governor and these people are trying to to pass and ram down our throats. They have emergency clauses on right to work and prevailing wage. And how is that an emergency when so many folks are without jobs right now and industry is shutting down, our kids are leaving rural communities because of a brain drain that they can't find jobs. How is that not an emergency? That is the emergency that should be focused on along with public... The teachers' pensions. Teachers' pensions. They're going to do a special session for that instead of focusing on that right here, right now, when they could do some good.
6: Sounds like you did your due diligence and
0: showed up and aren't being heard. Is that the way you feel
5: right now? That's everything that we are trying to do, and we are we are not heard by uh, by these extreme politicians, but we will be heard across the state to our members and to working families across this commonwealth.
0: So, as predicted the right to work bill made it out of committee and was scheduled for a vote in the house and the senate on saturday january 7th and tim was right it did feel like a fairly close process so folks from all over the state showed up in frankfurt early on a saturday morning to rally against the right to work bill that was on the verge of becoming a law in kentucky <laughs> That's the sound of hundreds of protesters who gathered in the rotunda and outside the gallery on Saturday morning. And Jeannie Smith, a KFTC member from Bowling Green, was one of the hundreds from across the state who showed up in protest of Right to Work. Here's Jeannie speaking on a live video from the KFTC feed that morning.
2: Hi, we're here in the rotunda in Frankfurt, standing up for the workers of Kentucky. a special session has been called on Saturday to try and pass through a bunch of legislation that would hurt our Kentucky workers. So we're here, giving them hell. I wanted to come because um, when we when we cut out unions, when we create right to work states, we hurt the workers. It's uh, we can look at all the states that have done this. Eugenie, so, uh,
0: along with. Hundreds of others held their ground and stayed really loud all throughout the morning in resistance. In fact, Jeannie led this really incredible charge up to the gallery to try to get in because they were keeping people out for the vote. And she actually found a way into the gallery, which is just another perk of knowing your legislator. But of course, just watch them pass the bill. Today, it's February, and now Kentucky is a right-to-work state. I think that we're still trying to figure out what this means for workers in Kentucky, and we may not even know for many more months. But I don't think that that's any less reason to keep showing up. So that about wraps up our show, but before we go, a few quick updates about our local work here in central Kentucky. Our next chapter meeting will be Thursday, February 16th, at the Episcopal Mission House in Lexington. That's at the corner of 4th and MLK across from the Living Arts and Science Center. We'll be there from seven and nine, talking about strategy to hold our elected officials accountable. Don't miss it. I mentioned earlier that actually, when the show aired live on Lexington Community Radio, KFTC rallied hundreds of folks from across the Commonwealth to stand together in resistance at the Capitol. If you'd like to find out more about the action, how to get involved with a local chapter, or how to lobby your legislators, or if you just want to get plugged into our work, check out our action page at kftc.org slash stand 4 KY. That's the number four. Again, that's kftc.org slash stand 4 KY. There's also lots of great information there about our upcoming lobby days, as well as how to learn more about what's going down in Frankfurt. You've been hanging out this week, of course, with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. If you want to learn more about how to become a member, check out kftc.org join. Also, just want to give a big shout out to everyone who gave to our Power to the People fundraising page this winter, Beth Howard, Julia Newman, Dave Newton, Jess Hayes-Lucas, Derek Ellis, Will H., Christine and Mahai, To Sarah Volpe, Abigail Overstreet, Amy Eddy, Caitlin Burrell, Chuck Clinney, West Trail, Joey Co., Josh Chrysler. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. If you're interested in becoming an underwriter for the show, give us a shout at power to the people kftc at gmail.com. That's also a great place to send feedback, questions, gnarly, criticism, etc. That's all we have for today. Thanks as always to Lexington Community Radio and our partnering organizations, the Kentucky Student Environmental Coalition, the Kentucky Workers League, and Central Kentucky Showing Up for Racial Justice. Power to the People is produced by myself, Meredith Wadlington, with support from Lexington Community Radio. Next week, you'll hear from Kentucky Student Environmental Coalition. You don't want to miss it. We'll see you then.